Hello, dearest patron. Welcome back to Alpha Bunga Bunga. This is an Alpha bonus bonus in which we respond to your questions and comments we've received over the past month or two. Um, but before that, uh, well, Phil, George, hello. How's it going? We're, yeah, no, we're no longer we're no longer together. It was um, no, all the intimacy not. we had is gone. Yeah, yeah. It's all like, but... it's all going to be distant and remote and cold and feel like it's all antiseptic and antisocial once again. Um, well, maybe we just need to replace that intimacy with a, I don't know, a more authentic digital intimacy, a kind of Zoom. <laughs> what you mean with your fingers? Using your fingers? Digital <laughs> intimacy? No. Well, no, I mean like, uh, what, who's who's to say that this couldn't couldn't be better than seeing each other in person, just Zooming endlessly? Mm. Uh, Speaking of, of seeing each other and seeing people in person, uh, it was very lovely to see all those of you who came down to our London book launch. Uh, which was on the 24th of July, um, meeting a lot of you in person. Uh, we talked a little bit about, uh, about Berlusconi, about the book, about the podcast project as a whole. Um, and we, uh, we carried on drinking for a long time, and it was good. It was wonderful, actually. And it was especially good, I think, the fact of, um, as I mentioned at the time, it was especially nice that we were doing it in a place where you could actually order from the bar, because restrictions had been lifted by that point in London. So you could order from the bar without having to rely on those filthy, tedious QR code crap. Um, and it was also just nice to meet people, um, not least our uh, charming listeners. It was um, quite a quite a few people, um, you know, quite a few people came in and it was a nice and diverse cast. So it was great. It was really good fun to meet people. And it was yeah, really it was good actually- fun to be in company. Yeah, it was it was kind of kind of brilliant, and I think we were really vindicated by our choice of where to go after the pub because we went to somewhere <laughs> where we heard music that we hadn't liked fifteen years ago, um, but recognised all the songs, and it was actually kind of brilliant to just be out with with people. Um, yeah, so and the music and, was the music yeah was really was nice to meet, meet a load of people. Sorry, <laughs> now the the music was too loud and and too terrible, and um, I felt old. Um, though actually I didn't feel old because it's stuff that I hated even 15 years ago. So it's not like, it's like, I, I no longer liked it or something like that. Yeah. But anyway, but no, it, was uh, really, it was really good vibe as well. That might or might not have had something to do with the, the free, the free booze that we, that we put on that our listeners took, uh, took full advantage of and as, as did we, but yeah, no, I think we should, yeah, it was brilliant. To be, to be, to be done again. Hopefully we're looking into doing something yeah. in New York, um, more about that when we have more info, um, but hopefully uh, able to see some of our uh, East Coast listeners and get to know you uh, in uh, the coming months. Uh, anyway, let's let's get cracking. Uh, actually, before we do the uh, questions and we respond to all those, uh, we're recording this on Sunday, the 15th of August. And um, I think uh, Kabul has fallen. Uh, so obviously, it sounds this is, like uh, it, yeah. Yeah, the, the kind so of notorious is, notorious surrender monkeys, who, the United States. Who saw that coming? It was completely out of the blue. Well, the like, CIA expected Kabul it? possibly to fall within 30 to 90 days, but I don't think anybody expected it. Though really, I mean, I should have, but I didn't expect it to happen quite so quickly. I still have some lingering faith in the CIA. Um, it ties in actually to a previous, um, to a previous uh, session that we did on the... Uh, survivability of the Afghan regime, and where I mentioned, in fact, that a in a previous discussion that the um, the stooge kind of 
pro-Soviet regime that the Soviets had set up after they withdrew from Afghanistan in the late 80s survived for a few years before the Taliban came in in 97, but I got my dates wrong. Uh, they only survived for about three years until the early 90s, 92 or so, before the, so the pro-Soviet kind of government collapsed and you had the Mujahideen takeover and the collapse of Afghanistan into civil war before the Taliban rolled into Kabul for the first time in 96, 97. So anyway, the point being, I suppose, that even though I got my facts wrong, and thanks to one of our listeners who um, pointed it out, it's still yeah, the case. Thanks. You sound really genuine. Thank you to that it's, listener for pointing out my factual error. I will only improve if people keep pointing out the things I get wrong. And it's to say that nonetheless, despite that, the um, you know the the pro-Soviet kind of regime lasted with after the Soviets withdrew. It lasted for about three years, and the U.S. the pro-U.S. regime has lasted for a few months. So even the clapped-out Stalinists at the end of the Soviet Union could put up you know kind of still prop up a prop up a puppet regime for a few at least for a couple of years, unlike the U.S. So it's really astonishing. The other thing about it, I think, which is worth mentioning in relation to the podcast in particular, is people losing their shit on social media, particularly the liberal commentariat. And it's like they're reliving the trauma of the end of the end of history all, all over again. And I think it really drives home the fact of how much the um, the forever wars, the nation building wars, with their whole kind of complement of camp followers, of NGOs and um civil society investment and humanitarian and aid work and all of that stuff, how much that was part of the end of history. And it's ending all over and they're losing their minds. Their demand, you know, it's a humiliation for America, climb down, it's the end of something, it's the end of an era, insisting. And the only thing they have to offer in its place is another 20 years. No one has anything meaningful or concrete to offer as an alternative to um, fighting for another 20 years. So that trauma is still very raw and real. Yeah, it's just and, like a, a, a tragic lamentation, right? Like it's not like, oh, yeah. we've made a mistake here or people need to be held to account or we need to never do this again. It's like, oh dear. So it's only to say to our listeners, if you want to remember what the end of the end of history was like a few years ago, if you want to experience it all again, if you want to see knobs in all of its full deranged glory on social media, you should uh, log in over the next few days um, and be in on Twitter right now because you'll see it. The end of the end of history is happening all over again in Kabul. Yeah, and I mean, something that we've discussed on the podcast a lot of obviously is kind of state failure um, or, uh, yeah, like state failure in Western states and their inability to really run things at home to kind of build the necessary infrastructure, um, to have the necessary kind of state bureaucracies to oversee these things and so on. Um, and you wonder whether there isn't a sort of correlate to that in uh, the attempt at nation building abroad, right? That they also weren't able to put in place any sort of viable state in Afghanistan that wouldn't immediately crumble the second the, the troops pulled back and, and the sort of stalemate that was reached between U.S. led forces and 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 uh, and the Taliban, you know, as soon as that was gone, um, it was completely overwhelmed. Yeah. So yeah, I guess. But on the other hand, you know, and this is probably what the the states were thinking that you you know you miss a hundred percent of the shots you don't take. So sometimes you've got to. Oh uh, God, try Jesus and... Christ! If you say that one more time on the podcast, George, have I said it before? I mean, yes, so you've many said times. it multiple Advice. times, so many times. Well. It's just good. Also, how does it how does it possibly apply here? Like, what? How does that explain because, U.S. strategy? Because they were thinking, should we go for it? Should we try and nation build abroad? Well, on the on the one hand, there are all these potential difficulties, but you know, 
on the other column it's like you do miss 100 percent of the shots you don't take so maybe That's we should take this one and even if we're not that, it, that, score, that literally brings no light, light to the question whatsoever should we if, if you want to criticize their hubris then that is the way you should say it not like they should they, they're they're trying to be more um adventurous and you know good on them for for trying those shots even if they might at miss least, yeah, uh, at least they know. gave it a shot yeah but <laughs> they missed but you know who cares i mean it's only like thanks, what is it you know only human life input. you gave it a good go only you know, tens of thousands, maybe even hundreds of thousands of dead, but who cares? It's fine. I mean, what's going to happen next? It's it maybe worth kind of considering because Biden's now sending in yeah, a couple more point. troops. He's sending in another 3,000 or 6,000 troops. Um, and obviously they're they're saying, oh, you know, if any, you know, embassy staff are harmed or any of our people kind of there um, or, or, or their assets or whatever uh, are harmed, that then they'll um, have to retaliate against the Taliban. Um, yeah, they're there, but it looks like the Taliban. So at least at the time of the recording, it looks like the Taliban are trying to avoid a fight, um, yeah. which is interesting on a number of levels. So they're trying to avoid a fight while the U.S. withdraws its staff and its allies and Western allies. But also it seems then, you know, I mean, so Kabul's a large city, you know, it's well connected on the NGO circuit. I'm sure it's got like hipster cafes even and lots of foreign correspondents and, you know, lots of Afghans who are used to working for um, the NGOs and all that. And so it seems the Taliban are being smarter about the kind of international imagery that they want in terms of their taking over. They've also been careful about cultivating the Chinese diplomatically. They've made clear that they're not going to let... Um, their intention at least is not to let Afghanistan be used as a rear support base for jihadis in Western China, in Xinjiang. And so, you know, it seems like they're um, essentially it's a kind of uh, Islamo-nationalist project rather than a kind of insane globalist expansionist kind of jihadi um, project as ISIS was. So, I think that's, you know, what happens next is that they will make some noises about letting girls go to school. They'll avoid anything too kind of um, too obvious in terms of the cafes and the hotels where the Western journalists will hang out. They'll avoid anything too kind of bloody or disruptive happening in Kabul itself. And the rest of the country will probably, you know, kind of um, sink back into where it was before, which is essentially rural theocracy. So all this kind of noise about Afghan women being locked up, I mean, that will, my guess is, and I'm, you know, or imagine at least, and I'm sh pretty sure this will be, um, you know, I don't see that this wouldn't be true, is that will apply to kind of women in urban enclaves um, that kind of lived under NATO protection effectively, but that for the majority of women living in rural Afghanistan in smaller cities and towns, life won't change. But And, and, and from the part of Western powers, the double speak continues because they... Uh, continue to be say that they're concerned about what will happen to Afghans and whatever, where, you know, obviously their withdrawal has left their Afghan allies in the lurch. Um, but also that they, um, I think Johnson even said, I saw this, it was yesterday, uh, we know, we don't want to take in, in any Afghan refugees, which might be a good way of, of helping Afghans, you know, if that's what they yeah. wanted, um, because they don't want to encourage truly, the others. They don't want to encourage repellent. other refugees. Yeah. Yeah. Truly, particularly, I mean, there's a particular case at the moment of the so-called Chevening Fellowships that are the specialist um, specialist um, government finance offered for graduate students um, to do kind of public policy programs. It's sponsored by the UK government. And they've said that they're, they can't kind of administratively process um, the Afghans who've won the Chevening Scholarships for this year. Um, presumably because they don't want Afghan kind of scholarship students over here claiming asylum because it'll be, a, you know, an embarrassing reminder for the government and they want to avoid it. And they, I mean, it's not only kind of is it um, 
not only is it cruel, it's also really petty and pathetic as well. Yeah. Um, I think let's move on. Um, maybe we can come back to this at, a, at another point in time. The questions and comments put to us this month. Um, so just one general one to start us off, and it's from Graham Affinson, and it's actually about, about the book. Um, he, he comments, uh, while I agree that we are at an end of the end of history, uh, I'm less convinced that something else has started. I think we are coasting along in a sort of decadence, to use Ross Douthat's term. While the last several years have been, a we- have been weird and historic, I don't see any... Comp- I don't see any coherent competing ideology to liberal capitalism unless we differentiate between a sort of liberal nationalism and liberal globalism. Yeah, I think that's sort of broadly right, isn't it? The end of the end of history is a combination of this evident evident decay of society. You know, it's increasingly suffering from a kind of legitimation crisis, but there is a defeated, disorganized working class. So there's no force in society capable of revolutionarily reconstituting it there's no uh, big ideas for doing that so you sort of see the i guess the involution and the, the kind of the slide into into decadence maybe culturally or this kind of like running out of ideas turn towards the state potentially i'm sure we'll talk about this more within neoliberalism so yeah i think that's that's it that's a, that's why it's the end of the end it's a, like a double negative something's over but nothing's really there's no kind of clear alternative um so you sort of have a, a lot of forces of inertia and um, um stasis and gloopiness um that that's the the, the political gloopy. affect because gloopy yeah gloopy. you know like like gloopy very like winner paltrow's gloop or whatever it's called <laughs> isn't that called goop or it might yeah, be it's close enough goop. it's just a automatopoeic sort of word so George George is selling some new disgusting substance which produces a political affect. Is that it? Alpha, alpha bunga bunga candles, which smell um, bunga glue. Like, like right. your vagina, like your vagina, George. No, they just they they smell like a bunga party. So they they I don't know who would buy that. Check out the merch. Anyway, if um, you're interested, let, let, let's move on to another question because it's actually touches on this very same ground, and so it's maybe something that we can stretch our legs into a little bit more. Um, Going in reverse order, so taking the most recent episode first, uh, episode 207 and 208, Pangolin versus Lobster. This was our uh, interview with uh, Paolo Gervado. I think it's pronounced Pangolin. I don't think it is. Um, It's not. It's pronounced Pangolin. Let's move on. um, So JP says, with respect to protection, this uh, notion that recurs a lot in Paolo Gervado's book, uh, one reason I'm skeptical we have left the era of neoliberalism is that so many of government efforts since 2008 have been directed primarily at protecting privatized networks, that is, pumping money into financial services, large business interests, or private healthcare systems. To the extent that there is any protection for the masses, it trickles down primarily through these privatized networks. Rare examples like thing, uh, of things like direct government payments are an exception rather than the rule. So JP agrees that neoliberalism is losing whatever popular legitimacy it might have enjoyed, um, but that in the near term, the response to this loss of legitimacy might not be an expanded circle of protection, either within or outside the nation state, but a retreat by a privileged sector into the bunker. Um, 
thoughts on yeah, that? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think, I mean, it's, you know, it's, uh, as we've stressed consistently, it's not a, and I mean, this is our view, I suppose, more than um, Garibaldi's, but it's a messy process. Um, and it's governments are kind of feeling their way along. So they've expanded the kind of protection, the protective net dramatically with um, all the spending that has been done across the course of the lockdown. And indeed, I mean, it's how the state, how state power has been justified for the lockdown by so many states as protection. And now they kind of um, pull it back in, wind down furlough, um, throw decisions onto um, other corporate bodies. And there's all sorts of, you know, mixed messages about whether or not to wear masks, uh, rolling out the vaccines and whether or not there'll be booster shots and so on and so on. So it's, um, you know, it's very clearly not stable in terms of the way in which um, government policy is understood, the way in which it's authorized and justified. But the direction of travel, it seems to me, is clear that it's far more difficult to justify um, certain kinds of power, and in particular, to just to understand state power simply as supporting the private sector, simply as supporting the market, and that the state should kind of recoil and withdraw as far and as possible, um, yeah. Yeah, as far as possible. So, yeah, I, I mean, I don't want to be that guy, but the question as to whether like neoliberalism is is over, um, I think it, it obviously depends what you mean by neoliberalism. Um, and I think there is, but there is something kind of interesting here. So my my take would be, is like the neoliberals, neoliberalism, and that's the neoliberals of the left and the right, that's over. This, this kind of idea of justifying everything through, you know, a small state or like the efficiency of markets, that doesn't seem to be flavor of the month anymore. But that was always, you know, marketing more than the key aspect. And I think Strake's sort of definition or understanding of, of this is really important that the, you know, what is neoliberalism? It's the encasement of the economy for politics. Um, and that's, and that's still the case, you know, Brexit did not end neoliberalism. You know, that's, that's one movement in that direction, but, you know, you still have that is the dominant way of, of governing. So you still have that, that core um, to, to a greater or lesser extent um, still, still present. And I think, the way to, to characterize it is to talk about, fa you know, failed state capitalism. So you've got this combination of a turn towards the state at the same time that the state can't really solve any of these these problems of citizens. Um, and maybe this is, you know, the, the highest stage of neoliberalism. Just to interrupt, though, yeah, I, I mean, I don't think turning no, to the state, I don't you think don't, turning, turning to, to the state says very much, because as we know, neoliberals, neoliberal forms of rule are availed itself very much of the state, right? It's just about a question of state transformation to state changing what it does. So saying that suddenly there's a turn towards the state doesn't say very much. What is the state doing? How is it changing? Yeah, but and what we mean is that it's not politically, it's no, you know, that state power was justified in terms of support for the market or in terms of the emergence of a regulatory state, that the state kind of sculpted this architecture within which competition and um, autonomy and efficiency was going to be achieved through market or market style interaction. And so it's a turn to the state, not in the sense that the state was absent before, but a turn, it's a different, it's a different way in which political power is justified and the way in which the state is visible and present rather than kind of um, constructing its own withdrawal. It's um, more visible, more directly visible in people's yeah. lives and then and, has to be justified. And, and it's being justified in protective terms. Yeah, well, exactly. And, and to try to uh, account for outcomes, I think that's an important thing. The state interventions try to say that, you know, we're not just 
helping out the market to then the market does what it does and it'll lead to you know some harmonious positive outcome for everyone but tries to account for some of its failures now that doesn't mean it's good and i think a lot of the discussion about the end of neoliberalism and why people um recoil from that conclusion is because uh, they think that that means that you're saying, oh, well, social democracy is coming back because the, the, the parameters of the discussion are either either you have ma- nasty, austerian neoliberalism with markets and people left to their own devices with, with no support from the state, or you have a nice, caring, supporting state along social democratic Keynesian uh, model. And I think that is a very... Um, wrong way to look about wrong way to look at it you can move beyond neoliberalism and we could end up with something far worse um or far more um where the um living standards or power over the working class is even maybe more diminished but it might not be neoliberalism i think if you start to, if you start redefining neoliberalism as uh, effectively like capitalism or the bad capitalism we dislike you lose all sorts of you'll lose all sort of um kind of political accuracy and sense of um like historicity, like sense of historical yeah, um, yeah, particularity, I, I, I specificity, I mean. Yeah, sometimes it is a little bit like people like, well, neoliberalism's over. So it turns out we didn't need to take power to, to change society. You've got this new model now. It's all it's all going to be fine. We just need, you know, to, to tweak our, our kind of theories of change a little bit and we can and, and we'll be fine. But no, I mean, it doesn't. We, we still have the same um, still have the same basic political problem. Like there's no. Uh, collective control over economic decisions and that's like that's not changed but that's so, capitalism. i mean I, can... I mean that's the thing that there that's that's capitalism and i think that's when the left loses sight of what capitalism is and lose lose sight of class it focuses on neoliberalism and becomes anti-neoliberal and so any turn away from that is seen as a as a political victory which it might not necessarily be um and there's another thing also, one which thing, which which is just sorry one okay, one point about on. the sort of ambiguity of the moment, which I think Phil you know rightly characterizes, which is that at the level of the state, especially like at the level of the executive, you see moves uh, kind of beyond traditional neoliberal um, modes of operating, as well as kind of modes of legitimation. So the way that the state justifies its actions is no longer. Um, about you know creating competition or setting markets free or things like that. That's important, but of course that seems to be in contradiction with other things that are happening, like for example increasing precarization of work, um, the kind of greater subsumption of, er- of 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 greater areas of life. So everything becomes marketized, everything becomes commodified, uh, the collection of data at every possible interaction you have with any private or public agency, et cetera. Those things are really important, but why are they specifically neoliberal? I'm not sure that they, they should be seen as specifically neoliberal. They're kind of longer term trajectories of capitalism and you know, kind of late capitalism, wherever we are now, uh, is, is kind of um, very focused on that, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's neoliberal. Yeah. I mean, maybe it's just a term now which has which isn't quite so useful i mean if it means you know class war from above and that's one thing we've we've talked about before that's obviously still still happening and that was you know that was covid that was a pandemic but maybe you know yeah, maybe it's also that's 300 years of capitalism mostly so yeah exactly um no but i mean i, I mean that seriously what the, you know what is what is distinctive about class war from above yeah, uh, in historical exactly. period yeah. So, um, yeah, so I guess that's, yeah, I guess I'm probably agreeing with you that there's, there's like, what, what exactly is it that we're talking about? 
and what is it that's changed what what is it that hasn't changed and does the term neoliberalism does it does it is it useful in that context or or you know can we talk about some of the constituent parts of of it and of 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 the you know capitalism more generally but yeah yeah i mean it's a I think people have been getting very irate about it on Twitter, so we should we should uh, stick our stick our oar in to the discussion. Um, moving on, uh, comments more comments on that same episode, different angles on it. Um, Bernhard Pickle comments, <laughs> Pickle, excuse me, <laughs> Pickle uh, comments. If there is indeed a resurgence of the politics of fear, um, something that we discussed in that episode, it's it's certainly also because people do have ample reason to feel powerless as collective resources of all kinds have been diminished in the neoliberal epoch. So I'd argue that there's an objective correlate to this politics of fear instead of just being manipulation. Um, One other point uh, related to this, and we'll just take them all together. um, Nicholas Clark uh, makes a comparison between uh, my point uh, about competing politics of fear by the left and by the right. um, And he compares that to the whole strategy of tension during the years of lead in Italy, which ended up just serving the liberal center. Um, I have, I'm not entirely sure about the comparison. Um, Uh, It kind of, there is a comparison, I think. And this was a point made by Thomas Fassi in, I mean, who knows? I mean, maybe Thomas got it in fact from the years of lead idea, where he talks about how you've got kind of right-wing culture war and left-wing culture war in the EU now, increasingly between say, law and justice in Poland, that the ruling party, Orbán's party in Hungary, um, Le Pen in France, allied with Orbán in the European Parliament. And on the other side, you've got the liberal technocrats, um, the Draghi administration in Italy, uh, Macron and so on. Um, and they argue, you know, they argue about the direction the European Union will go in. They argue about motions that the Parliament passes, about gay rights, about the role of the family in constitutional, um, you know, in constitutional documents about the role of courts, blah, blah, blah. But the centre in this case is the underlying infrastructure of the European Union. So it's liberal technocracy and also the commitment to the Eurozone and the fiscal restrictions that come with it. Um, and that is not challenged by either the liberal centrists and the technocrats or by the right populists who've committed to it. So, you know, I think there is, um, even if it's not quite as um, strategic or calculated, perhaps, as it was during the years of lead, there is um, still an underlying consensus which is served, whose interests are effectively served through these competing, um, you know, competing offers, essentially competing politics of fear. Mm. I can see that. So one, yeah, one one point on this, I think the um, Bernard's point is is very well made. That like the the more you're atomized and the more that you feel <clears throat> kind of uh, the problems are individualized, the more the more powerless you feel and the more fearful you're going to be. And that's you know the last eighteen months, I think of. Have, have definitely proved that but I think you can kind of go a little bit further even and say well you know who's really pushing the politics of fear at the moment it's it's the it's the left so you've got the fascism blackmail you know Paul Mason's new book how to stop fascism like what the, whatever the fuck he thinks is really going on there I mean he's definitely you know he wakes up at 4am to write because this is you know very important thing to do you've got environmentalism that's essentially the same structure. Like, look at the world's going to end unless you change your behavior. And then you've got the, the COVID blackmail as well. So you've got three blackmails. It's like the COVID blackmail being like this idea that we're all threats to each other. Um, and this is like the essentially the the kind of the social theory at the basis of, of the contemporary left. So it is one that's 
based in, you know, in a, basically a politics of fear and, and will be more or less successful um, depending on how that, on how that works. So I think, you know, I think it's a, it's a well-made point by, by Bernhard that there is an objective, there's an objective base to this, but it's like, there's a reason why people are open to, are, are, are open to a politics of fear, right? Um, yeah. People are receptive but who's, to but it. who's exacerbating that and who's sort of saying, well, you know, Paulette, don't act in concert collectively, physically, don't go on protests, you know, don't do, except if, if they're the right causes, because, you know, that's, that is essentially the left. And that's, you know, yes, yeah. that's, that's not the only the politics moment. of fear, because there is obviously a, you know, fear of migrants uh, that, that is talked up by the right. Maybe you don't have this in Britain so much um, right now, um, or maybe Global you just, Britain. maybe no, you, we... maybe you spend too much time reading the Guardian and not enough the Daily Mail, or maybe you spend your all your time with academics and NGO people who of course are all liberal and aren't part of this. So uh, there's another, they're, there's another side are, to, to this afraid. story. Um, no, I, I, I'm not sure. I think those two things are the same. Those two things are the same size. I think the, the first is much larger than the second, but you know, I might be proved, might be proved wrong. Um, I mean, amongst kind of elite institutions, absolutely. Um, but that doesn't mean that it, that, that government, I mean, if you think about what, look at the government of Italy, right. Um, that is, that is, uh, no, but look, Party I mean, it's COVID dedicated. is the main politics of fear at the moment, I right? I agree with that. Yeah, right it, now it is. We're not being is. ruled by, you know, by Zen. It's not like um, migrants are the main source of the way in which current governments maintain political order and justify their behavior, right? So, I mean, George is right for a change, so... Sorry, well, I sorry, Phil. I think you cut out there. Could you just repeat no, no, but that I, last I, thing that you said? I agree. The COVID, no, I agree. The COVID thing. The COVID thing is pretty uh, uh, fairly across the the kind of main the the center of the spectrum, um, I guess. Whereas the fascism, blackmail, and the environmentalism thing is a little bit more uh, a little bit more marginal to kind of more left milieus, um, which I think I completely agree with that they're really problematic. But I just don't know how. Um, like I don't think it's completely hegemonic. Uh, moving on then um, one last point on this episode Andrew Mountford says that I think Paulo is wrong to make the distinction between the right and the left's politics of protection uh, that is to say that the right has a politics of protection of property while the left has a pro uh, pro politics of protection of society um, in the sense that the left's blanket support for lockdowns has very much helped defend the property of the big tech oligarchs and the property in general. If house prices and the stock market weren't marching onwards, would the PMC left really be as keen on lockdowns and restrictions? Uh, I think a point well made. I don't think we have any, I don't know if anybody wants to add anything to that. Um, so moving on, uh, episode 206, uh, Eli Senesh, I hope I got your uh, name correct pronounced correctly this time um a hypothesis for why people don't trust the media i think we were talking about uh, kind of trusting the media in this in this three articles on post-liberalism um as society gets more educated more of us stop allowing ourselves to have gel man amnesia someone will have to explain what that means to me uh, we see how often the official institutions and media muck up the subjects on which we are ourselves experts and so we stop assuming that they're so reliable on all the other subjects too uh, I'm not, not sure, sure it works because the that only works if you've already suppressed the idea of uh, democratic participation as a general phenomenon. So if you live in an era in which democratic participation has been repressed and there's been generally contempt for the idea of the kind of capacity of ordinary people to collective collectively decide upon their own affairs, then, I mean, you know, by definition, you're going to have more kind of, you're going to have the greater um, 
role uh, or greater significance attributed to education. So I think, I mean, I don't, I think Eli's right, perhaps, you know, that as you kind of have growing ranks of PM, frustrated PMC out there, that kind of enhances... Or, or even not necessarily PMC, just P, more people going through university, for example, right? Yeah, though, I mean, I mean, there is a strong overlap between those two categories. But anyway, um, but even then, I mean, the idea that, you know, I'm smart, I've got an MA or I've got a BA, I went to university, um, these people, they're running things so badly... Um, that it, the issue is focused on education rather than the idea of um, kind of democratic participation in general. So I don't disagree with Eli, but I think there is a precondition for for why that works. I have uh, just to extend the, this hypothesis a little bit. It, I mean, it, and this is just drawing on my own experience. Like the more that you just read opinion pieces, like I mean, and this is the structure of newspapers increasingly. These kind of contrarian opinion pieces where it's like get get you to click on it and get you to think oh ooh, I, i've got a reaction to that i'm going to share it i'm going to whatever the more of those that you read and you just think this person doesn't have a fucking clue what they're talking about the more that you just think like journalists don't live in the real world i don't need to really listen um to what to, to their opinions on on anything i mean if you don't know what i'm talking about here just um just read a read read the guardian um opinion pieces and you can sort of you can sort of see see what i mean that might um reduce uh trust in in the media because these people presumably have like relatively high paying columnist jobs and and they're for their opinions and their opinions are, are very bad to terrible yeah that's why you shouldn't read the opinion pieces i mean the news the news maybe reporting is also yeah, bad, but that's what but, george uh, is saying there are nothing basically nothing left but opinion pieces in yeah. newspapers moreover yeah, that's 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 very true. Um, to move that's on, an, that's another hit, another home run for me. I've, I've, you know, two for mm. two. All right, so uh, moving on to well, episode two hundred and two hundred five, the world in one country, uh, both parts of it, and uh, the the main one and the grand finale. Um, lots of you commented that you enjoyed this. I don't know if we have very much more to comment. A lot of people shouting like, "Why didn't you include Tunisia or Algeria or whatever else?" Hey, uh, it was out there. Uh, we we put a call out for 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 suggestions. Uh, if you want to make your pitch, maybe we'll do something like this uh, again in the future. Maybe a different, slightly different question. Uh, George. Yeah. So, yeah, so I mean, I, I would. I, well, you said that I was away. I was on holiday. I wasn't. I was boycotting it because England was not allowed to be uh, a choice in it. And <laughs> I such, can't believe that you erased that. You're such a dick. But <laughs> one thing that it did make me think, actually, which I don't think any of the anybody really sort of picked up on was like you could have made an argument for the for the winner in terms of like what was the biggest or the most important event, like full stop between between 1900 and, and, two, and 2020 of, of the five finalists. And I was sort of thinking about this. And I was like, hmm, is it was it maybe, you know, the, the, the failed German revolution? I don't know. But it was a good it was a good episode. I have to mm. I have to admit, even. I mean, it's actually good that when I wasn't on it, because I could listen back to it without having to hear my own voice. But yeah, it was it, I enjoyed it a lot. So now I had I had the, the no, indeed, that's a good suggestion. It, it would make the podcast so much nicer um, to listen to. Uh... I would enjoy it. <laughs> actually, at the book um... launch, the number of people who came up to me and said that I was the favorite, I was their favorite. I mean, that number was like. I mean, there's no way one. to. to... <laughs> <laughs> The number of people, but the number, number of persons. Because zero is, zero is not a number. Uh, mm. Well, maybe it is. In some ways it is. In some ways it isn't. Interesting. I, I mean, a bit like white and black aren't colors. 
Um, anyway, mm. um, moving on. Uh, I think this is going to be the, well, no, it's not going to be the last one we do, but there's a lot to talk about here. It's, uh, you'll, you'll guess what it is about. It's uh, episode 203, Positive Biopolitics uh, with Benjamin Brand. You people really love this episode. Um, no, actually, before the, we come to the criticisms, um, people seem to have really enjoyed actually listening to it, even though they disagreed very often. And they appreciated the fact that we have people on that we disagree with and that we're not af- afraid to have controversial figures on. Um, so we appreciate that. And uh, we'll, we're, we're going to keep trying to invite guests uh, with whom we disagree. Maybe, maybe we yeah, just we're, won't we're agree actually with invite, them. We're going to invite people that we disagree with with as much as possible just to irritate. Just, just um, a lot, lot of an annoying libs. Yeah, exactly. Well, just to um, irritate all of our listeners in a slightly different way. Exactly. Which I think is what what was achieved for this episode. So um, let me go through these. Some of these we'll just have to uh, read out and try to respond to them kind of after uh, taking several in, in one go. Um, Nicholas Kiersey is having a go at us again for not understanding Foucault uh, because Foucault already has a positive uh, vision of biopolitics. It is a democratic vision of biopolitics. Uh, and also points out that you can't just fold a gambin into Foucault because uh, Agamben is clearly a radlib idiot who hates Foucault precisely because he sees in Foucault the potential for positive biopolitics. Um, I don't know if we would any comments on that. I mean, I know Nick um, is attached um, to Foucault and having a you know potentially kind of using Couteau Foucault as a cutting having a sharp cutting edge, and I think I mean you know there is. Um, there is the uh, that Foucault offers certain kind of analytical tools that are especially um, insightful and appropriate to the moment. But the idea that there is some something to be rescued there in terms of a pos, you know, in terms of a, I don't want to use the word positive, but in terms of an emancipatory vision, or that there's a positive biopolitics or a democratic biopolitics that just seems to me to be both to mis to misconceive what Foucault's project was about. Um, and also just to be misguided. I don't, I mean, I think by its nature, biopolitics is incompatible with democracy. Well, that's, that's, I think the good, the question, I mean, I would have said something sort of similar, but actually, you know, maybe is worth thinking about, are they, could you have, what would a democratic biopolitics look but the, like? But I think because my understanding in- is it would sort of undermine the, the sovereign individual, which is the starting point of, of democratic politics. But you know, there's maybe more in it there than 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 we saw. I mean, just to throw something in there, it might be might be conceivable precisely that a positive biopolitics is only possible in a radically democratic society, uh, whether you call that socialism or whatever, and that in uh, an unfree society, in class society, a biopolitics can only be oppressive. That uh, any vision of a positive biopolitics. Yeah, I think. Is, is, uh, I think that's. I think I would tend to agree with that. I think the. Um, that in in a society that's divided by incompatible and mutually exclusive economic interests, then all sorts of what otherwise you know of te- of um, what otherwise would appear to be kind of very basic neutral decisions about public health, about um, I don't know social control, about public order, all of these necessarily become infle- inflected in different political ways, and so that you could only you know 
the meaning of you could as Alex says you could only have a biopolitics in fact under socialism um, but then its entire meaning would be it wouldn't exist as a kind of meaningful or coherent category it would simply be the um, you know kind of uh, decisions that are mutually agreed taken in the interests of the overwhelming majority to achieve certain kinds of public health outcomes whatever they might be so I think you know it's an it's incoherent ultimately if it exists, it exists in, to in a form which makes it um, unrecognizable to how it's being discussed here. Um, we're going to have a chance to pick up more of these threads as we go along. Um, Blake says, uh, I love the part where he, that is uh, Bratton, mentioned how constrained the current left is by the 60s anti-authoritarian strand. Like Mark said, the tradition of dead generations weighs like a nightmare upon the brains of the living. Um, I think that was that was my favorite point made in that uh, made in that article made in that article mm, excuse me, made in that episode. Um, it's a, a podcast, Alex, not a magazine. And I, I can't. I, it's I've got like synesthesia, but in in terms of like informational sources, <laughs> I don't know if I heard or tasted the information or smelled it or read it. Um, anyway, so the, We're definitely I think that, moving towards having bunga cast candles, like <laughs> instead of having to listen keep... to it, you just you just smell it. And it goes straight into your. Mm, it smells. Purple. It smells purple. I think. I don't know what purple smells like, but it definitely smells purple. Um, I think that was a good you point. Have, you can have hang different. Sorry, sorry. This is not important, but I've started, so I'll finish. You can have different colors of noise. So you can say, for example, what pink sounds like, because pink noise is, you know, white noise is quite like. You could put in a bit of white noise, but it's like, and then pink noise is like. So it's actually much nicer. No, it's, what it's going to be is a looped track of me sighing quite loudly over what you've just been saying. That's what. Anyway, um, as long as it's loopable and let me, George, shut the fuck up. Um, <laughs> 1960s boomer. Get on with it, uh, I on, George, shut the fuck up. I'm trying to. Um, boomer theory. Yes, I thought that was a very good point about it, but uh, someone has a different take on that. And I'm, so I'm going to read it out. Excuse it. This is going to be a little bit of a longer comment, but a lot of you seem to like this comment on Patreon. So uh, I'm going to read it out, not in full, but uh, edited for brevity. Sensible Captain says, leftists with quote unquote correct views on the pandemic frame their blatantly authoritarian ideas in an evasive, superficially elegant way so that anyone would intuitively agree with them. Bratton uh, has a fetishistic approach to the virus as an objective constraint. That is, his whole argument hinges on disavowing the social and political dimensions of the pandemic and substituting it with a material technical form, something I think we were just talking about in relation to biopolitics. Uh, for sensible captain, class is obscured and accelerationism shuns any emancipatory vision, quite in contrast to Bratton's lamentation of postmodernist boomer theory. Um, the, the suggestion being here that uh, postmodernist boomer theory did actually present some vision of emancipation, which Bratton doesn't. Advocacy for the surveillance state and a positive biopolitics to serve the interests of the marginalized is cynical. Uh, the marginalized in South Africa's Durban responded to uh, to the lockdowns with food riots, for example. I think there's a little bit more to the to the riots in Durban than just food riots, but point taken. Uh, Bratton shreds any concept of emancipation from a state of affairs where the subordination of humans to the technical material world would be something to be overcome. His positive biopolitics, that is Medicare for all, state vaccination programs, and so on, embraces the world as it is. Um, lots to take in there. Um, let's let's just dwell on the boomer theory question for a second, because Blake brought up, uh, you know, his appreciation for that point where a sensible captain is skeptical of it. 
So uh, it's the one. I mean, as I agree with you, I think Bratton's point in terms of boomer theory is right, um, and that the the um, supposed anti-authoritarianism of the 1968ers, in fact, disintegrated any actual coherent notion of political power, of a way to justify political power and political authority. And if we don't have those conceptions, then you're never going to get from A to B. So I, 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 think, I think Bratton is right. I mean, I take the other points made by Sensible Captain, and I think, um, you know, they're well made and well taken um, by and large. But I think on the boomer theory, I'm happy to go with Bratton on that one. Well, I, I think what's interesting about this is that boomer theory, I and mean, we're saying boomer theory here, we really mean kind of the new left, is that there was obviously a humanist impulse behind them, a liberatory impulse, and, and a critique of Stalinism. I mean, that's what it was fundamentally rooted in. Um, and so there was an emancipatory moment, but of course, they dispensed with authority altogether as a consequence. Uh, what we now have is the sort of tail end of a lot of boomer theory, but without any emancipatory element to it. So we, I think in that regard, we kind of have the worst of both worlds. Um, yeah. Uh, just to no, take I, in I, Andrew Mountford's uh, comment, oh. um, which moves us back onto the sort of biopolitics question um, and away from boomer theory. Uh, he agrees with the sensible captain's comment saying, how can you have a socialism when the prevailing idea of the time is that we are all biological threats to each other? This is not to say that there isn't a case for temporary restrictions or awareness of the disease and so on, but the notion that any po anything positive can come out of this for a philosophy which bases itself on community and participation is quite frankly both bizarre and sociopathic. Um, yeah, I mean, this is this is one of the central the central points that you know I was trying to make earlier around the basically the politics of fear um, that the left has, and that that like if you basically start with the idea that you can infect somebody else with this deadly virus um whether you want to or not that means fundamentally we're all threats to each other and any subjectivity is is out the window and that's that's not a place for any sort of emancipatory politics or anything i don't think which is going to move forward human freedom but just to go back to sensible captains point i think this idea of the virus as an objective constraint is a very you know very well made and it's an important one because that is that is something which has come through extremely clearly is how the it's a classic fetish in that in that in that marxist sense um that it is an objective reality to which we have to respond supposedly but of course it's not it's it's socially constructed and we are um i guess seeing the the effects of treating it as as an objective constraint for example in uh, australia's continued uh, lockdown, which there's a very good piece on that in Unheard recently. Um, you know, shout out to that. Um, but yeah, no, I think it, but I still would, would stand by this, uh, you know, this interview being an important one, because I think this is a really uh, going to be an influential theoretization of, of, um, of COVID. George, if you could give a shout out to something, say what it actually is rather than just hand wave at, at something. It's I like forgot, a random citation. I've forgotten the name, like, though. I so don't do it. So don't do it. Anyway, don't Shahar, it. it's Shahar Hameri's piece, uh, criticize, and he's been very consistent in criticizing uh, Australia's never-ending uh, lockdown and COVID-zero COVID, zero, What's zero it called, COVID illusions. I could have said it was Shahar's piece. 
I could have okay. said, I should have said that. Okay. Okay. Why didn't you say okay, George. Okay. Let's move. Let's continue on. Why, you guys uh, are being very critical. I just feel, I feel very, I feel very criticized. Now you, have, you have a critique of critical have a criticism. Time. Yeah. Um, yeah, exactly. Jeffrey Martin uh, says that the, that Bratton slagging off of a gambin is a tell after suspicions about liberalism morphing into a regime of biosecurity have been proved right. It's a tell that much of the left can no longer perceive what it is doing objectively. Uh, in that it is advancing the political program of the most authoritarian and retrograde elements of capital, all the while hallucinating that it is doing something different. I think that's a very good point. He continues, capital is trying to lay the foundations for monetizing every quanta of data that can be mined from your social interactions and from your very biological processes. There is no decommodified version of this, no socialist version of it. The only purpose of the technology is precisely this. Capitalism is fucking failing, has a massive overhang of dead debt, and needs to create tens of trillions in fictitious capital to keep the goddamn game going a little longer. This accelerationism will not bring about revolution. It will summon monsters, the destruction of every human good that cannot be quantified on a balance sheet, and bring about collapse. I think that's very good. Um, I think that's I well think put. If, if, I'd I mean, say it's, I mean, it's apocalyptic. And I think generally, I mean, you know, we don't, I think it's dangerous to end up trapped on, you know, kind of a cleft stick where you've got the COVID apocalypse on the one hand, and then the matrix style kind of um, apocalypse on the other, the machines and the capitalists. It's not, it's not an apocalypse because it's a steady drip of... He says the destruction of every human good that can be quantified on a balance sheet and bring about collapse. I mean, that it's not going to bring about. It's not going to bring about collapse. Well, it's not going to bring about collapse. That I disagree. I agree. It's not going to bring about collapse, but it is the steady quantification. And, and the other thing, what I was going to say was, at the same time, I think there's no avoiding the fact that the um, some of these processes you know, could genuinely be harnessed to positive ways. Some of the technologies, I think, and this is the thing that we've talked about before, in terms of the, um, you know, the expansion of these enormous kind of new data services, um, the uh, availability of so much kind of information on the cloud, the ease of access, and indeed that the algorithms know what we want. That doesn't seem, you know, that seems to me to be suspect in a world in which Jeff Bezos is so rich and so powerful. It doesn't seem to me to be suspected. Yeah, but, okay, so I mean, you're arguing for positive biopolitics, I suppose. No, it's not a positive biopolitics, is it? Because we've already talked about it. No, but why? But why being, no, but seriously, why so, isn't it? Why isn't it? Because I think because there's a thing here, and here's my my take on why the left has one of the reasons that the left has bought into lockdowns, and this is a more generous reading, or at least why the Marx bits of the Marxist left has, is that there's a. You, if you're a Marxist, Marxist, if you're a Marxist, you think that the way out is through that you need to embrace the technologies available to you for and use them for human liberation and not retreat and not try to go backwards to some uh, sort of status quo ante or to some previous uh, uh, arrangement. Right? Um, there's it, it's basically anti. Not why anti embraced, it's, hang on, hang on, hang on. That's not why they've embraced lockdown. No, no, I know it isn't, but like the but there's a there's an anti-romanticism built in right that we should be accelerationist and not romantic and that's part of the that's part of the thing right um that the state has uh, these capacities and, and we should go through them and democratize them rather than saying that retreating from it entirely i'd i i would have a slightly different take on this and, that, and that's sorry and sorry just to finish that my point is that that's what phil's arguing for with regard to a lot of these new technological capacities that they should be seized and not I, uh, destroyed well it's yeah, not so I much that I'm... i think it's avoiding the i think it's avoiding the question entirely if we don't accept the fact which i think is really is true that we have the technology already existing for the implementation of a completely different sort of society it's a political not a technological 
problem. I think it's a bit of a bit of a cope. It would be would be the internet slang, but it's a bit of a way of avoiding the political question. No, so um, I'm, and, I'm not saying that we have to wait upon some kind of technological breakthrough in order to precipitate certain kinds of political changes. All I'm saying is rather, or rather, what I'm saying is that where capitalism is stuck in these kinds of contradictory dynamics, it lays consistently lays down infrastructure and foundations for a potentially different kind of society. And I think that's evident in the new kind of data technologies and the new kinds of um, internet technology that's available and data harvesting and all of that. Um, but the way in which it's institutionalized and the way in which it's controlled and implemented and so on is retarded in certain kinds of um, retarded or, you know, and with oppressive fettered in certain kinds of ways. So it's not that there's some kind of absolute barrier to be overcome, but rather that there is a constant recreation of the basic, um, the basic problem in new technological guises. I really okay, want to start I mean, a Marxist that's... journal called Fettered and Retarded. Um, <laughs> I think it would be great uh, if anybody wants to fund this. No, anyway. Um, Go for it. No, I, I, I mean, yeah, I, I think that tweeting technology one-sidedly either as the the agent of liberation or as um, entirely um, the, the the tool of, of repression is is undialectical and you don't want you don't want to do that I mean obviously that's you know you have to put technology in its social context of society also, in which class struggle is 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 the the primary dynamic and that's you know but certain I technology I, I don't think it's right to treat technology as you know value neutral or politically neutral socially neutral um, there might be technologies which might be but there is a certain intentionality inscribed in in various technologies they're designed necessarily to be oppressive or to be surveillance things. So um, to, to move on with the question, the last two questions, last two comments on uh, this very contentious episode with uh, Benjamin Bratton, uh, Scott Kirkland defends Agamben saying that Agamben's project has been deeply shaped. And this is actually quite interesting because he places it in its historical context. I don't know if it's true or not, whether it's correct or not, but it's interesting. Uh, Agamben's project has been deeply shaped by the early arrival of the end of history in Italy, well before he was picked up in Anglo-American theory after 9-11. To read Agamben as some kind of vitalist alternative to the, biopol to the biopolitical is to totally ignore the way that he understands the European project itself as the ultimate victory of capital over any alternative form of life. He's living in fucking Venice, after all, watching any shred of what was a form of life eviscerated by touring cosmopolitans and their cruise ships and Airbnbs. Um, one last question, and we can just quickly respond to these. Uh, Skip Moore says, the lockdown PMC left are essentially supporting the st a state of siege being declared on the working class after the defeat of Corbyn and Sanders and with Brexit and, tr and a Trump second term looming. Uh, this is to say in kind of early, early 2010, early 2020, excuse me, um, looming around the corner. Uh, COVID was then a, a lifeline for them to cling on to some kind of political relevance. Any comments on either of those? I think the Skitmer is being is being very uh, very cynical and ungenerous towards the the lockdown PMC, um, but in the British case, this is unfortunately entirely correct. You saw a real. There was only like six weeks between like the Brexit victory and the, and the lockdown defeat, and it was like yeah, it was all the same people who'd got got beaten in one that was definitely not going to lose the next one, and I think that that. Um, accounted for some of the uh some of the political character of those discussions at that at that point in time all right let's move on to another episode uh this is uh we just got a couple more um 
the comment on three articles, number 202, clerisy, war, and football. Um, Mark Wallace comments about Germany's imperial interests uh, being pushed up against most other EU members. Uh, this is a comment in relation to an article that we discussed by Wolfgang Streich about Germany's kind of imperial plans in Europe. Um, while trying to separate themselves from the US and Germany, uh, well, from excuse me, while trying to separate themselves from the US, Germany has always wanted to work together with Russia while leaving behind all the other Eastern European states that want to support the West because they're more or less rightfully afraid of Russia. Uh, so the European solidarity thing is just an act. And when it comes to Russian gas, the Germans uh, will quickly put on the pimple hood. I don't know what that means, but um, I, so, I suppose it means that. Yeah, that what just... is a pimple hood? I thought you were going to be able to explain. I, I don't know. I guess is that, I hope <laughs> in saying it, you guys would know. Maybe it's a German expression. Uh, I don't know. Um, I think that's a good point. I don't know if, if you want anybody wants to comment on that. Um, uh, I mean, it's it sounds to me sensible and I, I tend to agree. Uh, uh, Eli, I also Senesh. don't know what, what the pimple head refers to. No. Oh, thank well, you for coming in know. after we'd already moved on. Yes, it's just when like uh, it's a MacGuffin, it's something which the, you know we can refer back to many times. And people, I don't know what that is. Uh, Eli Senesh oh, says, I would tend to think the difference between the clerisy and the PMC. This is our discussion about the, the clerisy. Um, is that the latter, that is, the PMC, are sometimes useful. The medical workers who developed and distributed vaccines against the pandemic are professionals, and it's hard to say they didn't both revolutionize production in their field and provide a social good. Uh, I think that's uh, well put. Fair point. Yeah. yeah. Um, Nicholas Clark on the same theme. I think a useful difference between the clerisy and the PMC is cultural versus economic. The PMC cultural hegemony is ultimately enforced by a clerical vanguard that draws from large parts of the values of the PMC, um, but is also reinforced by other class agents. The clerisy may be what you get when the actual productive capacity of the PMC is subtracted. To paraphrase Graeber, all of the bullshit, none of the job. I really like that. Yeah, nice, nicely put. Nice and it kind point. of reinforces what Eli Senish was saying. And I think it's probably true. And I think, you know, perhaps the point that the, the clerisy end up speaking for the PMC. So given the kind of the current composition of um, politics in Western states, the over kind of the uh, the the prominent public role of the PMC, the fact that the working classes have no kind of um, independent agents for their own kind of representation in terms of uh, functioning or effective labor unions and what have you, and they're not politically represented by anyone, um, that the kind of the, the extra space occupied by the PMC means that the clerisy become their natural representatives. Um, and so, you know, the clerisy yeah. and the PMC are kind of uh, effectively united. One yep. one point that I would make, just just um, against Eli's point, is that it's is, and I'm not saying this is what he's saying, but it kind of is part of that argument. We just, it's almost like we just need more STEM PMC. If we could just get more engineers and more medical workers, then actually maybe the PMC would be honestly Honestly, honestly, I'm sympathetic to that. Yeah. Yes. Less cultural studies degrees and less kind of uh, philosophy degrees in Agamben and Foucault studies. Um, oh. And maybe indeed, yes, maybe indeed more engineers and STEM and STEM oh, graduates would be a good thing. Why don't you be trained then? I mean, how well you're read to reason against reading, you might say. Like, because I'm not a Foucaultian, is there, so is I'm there, okay. Is there, class, is there class position? Which, Why do anyway, you but it's about, it's about, social, so it's about social function <laughs> and ideological role yeah. played, not just about yeah, no, no, kind I, of your economic. Okay. Okay. I wanted to make that point. Just wanted to okay. kind of spice things up a little bit, you know, have some. Well, have one some, final point uh, on this matter. Paul Brewer says, the more I hear people trying to define the PMC, the less I want to use the term. It seems increasingly a left counterpart to the way centrist liberals throw around the word like fascist. 
which seems to equal non-socialist person whose opinion I don't like. As for the clerisy, this strikes me as a fancy pants way of talking about what was once known in British journalism as the chattering classes. Uh, I'm sympathetic to Paul Brewer as well. I mean, I don't, you know, like the PMC thing, I think it's unavoidable to some degree, but getting, throwing, you know, it can also become a cope. As the kids say on the internet now, according to Alex, it can also become a cope um, for certain sections of the left, the same way that fascism is a cope for other sections of the left. Um, and the clarity, I think, I mean, the reason it's more specific than the ch chattering classes is because I think it captures um, a deeper history of a certain kind of intellectual stratum and the different kind of purposes they've served over a longer period of time, whereas chattering classes is um, very colloquial and specific to the to British. And, and they're like consumers, this, I think, yeah, right? The chattering classes are right. consumers of those ideas, whereas the clarity yes, are, are yeah. the producers. The chattering classes kind of read the Guardian. The clerisy are involved in actually producing the ideas. I think that's right. So yeah. one one just reflection on this is that you have all these different terms: <clears throat> petty bourgeoisie, PMC, chattering classes. You know, liberal establishment is maybe not the same, but they all basically you know talk about these people who the middle classes who are intermediate Lip between hard. the two. Yeah, I mean, but I think it it, it basically reflects the. Uh, outsized importance that they have in contemporary politics that there are all these different things to kind of you know <clears throat> different ways to describe them I, I still like petty bourgeois um but i use pmc because it's sometimes you just you just like you just they're annoying and and you want to be like oh they're so terrible so maybe there is a little bit of that like uh like like fascist they're, they're so terrible so yeah, yeah, I mean, maybe it's a point well made by by Paul Brewer, but yeah, and it, and it loses and point. it loses the political and, element to it, right? Um, the the political problem yeah. with it. So I think I think petty bourgeoisie is a good is a good uh, good term as well. So mm. there you go. All right, we're going to leave this here. Thank you very much for all your questions and comments. If we've uh, neglected to discuss yours, I'm sorry. Um, we have to shorten for time, but uh, you can shout at us. And we'll try to, and we'll endeavor to respond to you next time. Coming up, uh, so this is out on Tuesday, the seventeenth of August. So we've got coming up uh, later this week. We're recording on Thursday, the nineteenth. Uh, the next reading club for those who uh, are signed up to that tier. Um, we are discussing Eli Zaretsky's history of psychoanalysis um, and his uh, the way he interweaves the history of psychoanalysis with changing spirit of capitalism. It's a fascinating essay, which is actually the first chapter to a book called Political Freud, but it can be read uh, on its own. Um, it should be a really fascinating discussion. If you have any questions or comments, I know it's short notice. I mean, we do announce these within a month in advance, but here's a reminder. If you do want to submit any questions or points, please do so by, uh, by Thursday afternoon. And then the following week, uh, what have we got, Phil? We have a discussion about um, pandemic responses, particularly of the U.S., um, and so, again, we'll be talking about COVID, but this time um, from a lockdown skeptic position. So, Very good. And then uh, we're going to round up the month with another uh, three articles. Uh, I think we'll be talking about uh, China, talking about modern dating, and talking about uh, net zero. Uh, all, all different sorts of middle-class anxieties. <laughs> so uh, that's uh, that to look forward to. Thank you for listening. Catch you later. Bye-bye. <laughs>